On 26.1 AI podcast today, we are honored to have Dr. Rachel Tatman. She's a data scientist on the ML platform Kaggle. Her personal research interest is computational social linguistics. Prior to her career in data science, Dr. Tatman completed a PhD in linguistics from the University of Washington. She helped found Our Ladies Seattle and is always happy to talk about our hedgehog, Gus, who is in the studio with us today. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me, Brian and Don. One thing I really like about Kaggle, so my team and I have, and I've known some various grandmasters around my, my years uh, in Kaggle competitions, and it is absolutely the crown of a ultra data science nerd. Absolutely. With a lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> lots of time, lots of free time and loving to overfit models. But, you know, it brings up the question is, is, you know, how reproducible are these models? Because, you know, when I think of the Netflix challenge, the original one that got things like Kaggle started, I believe, I heard, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that the winning competition was never put in production because it was not reproducible and it wasn't well written. Um, and you have something to say, Rachel, about reproducibility of models, don't you? Can you tell us about that topic a little bit? Yes, I can tell you many things about that topic. Um, so reproducibility in machine learning means um, that you can get the same model out once you've uh, given the same training data. Um, it also means that you have a model that will consistently make the same sort of predictions given the same sort of data. Um, so that's, you know, I think we like to believe that there is, uh, specifically for supervised learning problems, there's the correct answer and you should get the correct answer most of the time. Uh, and for folks, especially folks coming from a software engineering background, um, working in machine learning can be very disorienting because a lot of machine learning algorithms are non-deterministic, um, which means that you will not get the same output every time. So um, I guess I should ask, in general, how much background do your, your readers have in, in deep learning? There's AI in the podcast naming, name, so I'm assuming a lot. Yeah, I think it's about 50-50. So Don, Don can answer this question probably better than me. But our goal is to touch on the technical crowd half of the time and definitely the business crowd the other half of the time. And I think both intersect on our podcast. So you'll, you'll reach both audiences in this. So... Don, do you want to add to that? Well, we also go so fast, so we don't have enough time to get really deep in the implementation steps, right? So, Okay, fair enough. Um, so an example of something of a, like a deterministic algorithm where you'd always get the, the same answer out every time would be something like FizzBuzz. If you're familiar with FizzBuzz, it's a very common um, technical interview question, and it's based on a... I want to say like a Victorian party game where uh, you start to count and every time a number is divisible by three, you say fizz. And every time a number is divisible by five, you say buzz. And every time a number is divisible by three and five, you say fizz buzz. Um, and so the common way to do this would be to have, you know, some some loops and, uh, you know, or, or check some sort of condition. Uh, and every time you get to 15, you should always say fizz buzz, right? Uh, in a deep learning model, or not even just a deep learning model, but any sort of stochastic learning model, which is many of them, anything that has any degree of randomness. If you were training, let's say, a deep learning model to do fizzbuzz, um, 
there's no guarantee going into it that you're going to get a model out that is always correct. Well, I'm going off on a little bit of a weird tangent here. Uh, Any machine learning model is always going to be wrong some of the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's an important topic that we bring up is a little bit about how much does a the general population understand prediction you know mm-hmm. and how important is it to be transparent in its results you know explainable and that sort of topic so to just go a little deeper on that because i think you're on the right track with that yeah definitely um we can't have perfect systems i would say um I mean, in theory, I suppose you can imagine a system that has an extremely, extremely, extremely low error rate. Uh, But in order to get a very low error rate, especially with um, some sort of deep learning system, you'd need to have an amount of training data so large, uh, particularly for a very complex question, that it's uh, just unfathomable. Uh, and then you'd also have to train for a really long time. So I don't know if you guys have seen the, there's just some discussion going around on Twitter now about some of the um, the ICML papers that have been um, submitted. If you're not familiar, ICML is a conference on machine learning. It's an academic research conference um, and they have an open review process. So people have uploaded their anonymous papers. Um, and one of the papers was training on, I think it was 512 GPUs for three months and still hasn't converged. And that is like a couple million dollars worth of compute. So there's this strong trend in machine learning research that the more data you have and the longer you train for and the bigger your model is, the more parameters it has, specifically in deep learning research, the better the results you will get. Uh, and a lot of the sort of top leaderboard contenders right now in different leaderboards, like um, Glue is one for for language in particular, um, are bigger models, more data that have trained for longer, um, and that's just not that's just not in the in the uh, the reach of most people. And also, we haven't gotten to the point where we've hit ceiling, right? Uh, it seems, at least for the current time, that continuing to add data and continuing to run models for longer does, in fact, continue to get better results pretty much indefinitely, um, which I suppose begs the question, at which point is training a model for three months no longer a good use of your time and something that you can defend a uh-huh. to your you know, boss, <laughs> your supervisor, um, yeah. like as a use of our planet's limited resources? Yeah, I was at ICM, and I think that there were so many posters there I did not understand. But I also was wondering, you know, how much is the academic application of the machine learning and data science useful to the business? And isn't there enough low-hanging fruit out there to be solved without going that deep? Yes, absolutely. Um, I actually had a a talk at um, PyCon last year. Um, No, this year, 2019. Yeah, 2019 this year, uh, where the whole point of the talk was you almost never actually want to use deep learning in a business use case. Um, Explainability, oh, sorry, there's a seaplane. Explainability is a big part of that because deep learning models, um, you can have a limited degree of explainability. This is an active research area, Uh, but with something like a linear regression model, which is much simpler and much faster to train and doesn't require as much data, you can say, oh, hey, if I'm trying to predict whether or not I'm going to um, 
let's say whether or not someone is going to buy a specific product and I adjust the age variable, you know, one year up or one year down, that has a very clear and interpretable uh, effect on the output of the model. So maybe for every uh, year older you get, holding all other constraints constant, you are 4% more likely to buy something that old people like uh, prunes. I like prunes. I'm not an old person, <laughs> but I feel like that's uh, a sort of a stereotypical thing that, that older folks tend to like. Um, so that's a very interpretable model, and it's very clear um, from the model what your business logic should be. So if you are the world's largest prune distributor, probably you're going to want to um, take out advertising space in, uh, let's say, a, a format that's going to be more effective at reaching people who are older because they're more likely to buy your product already. And you don't get that same level of interpretability from deep learning models currently. So if you're trying to inform business decisions, um, having that straightforward relationship between the input variables that might uh, change your decision making is very valuable. And you don't necessarily get that from a deep learning model yet. Maybe in five years, it'll be like, oh, yes, of course. We can clearly interpret all of these uh, these variables in a relationship with each other. But just now, uh, that is not necessarily the case. So on, on the simpler models for business uses, Rachel, hmm. uh, how much of that is uh, responsible for us being served up across the internet um, ads for things we've already bought? <laughs> uh, that seems like, well, I should say, I don't have that uh, deep of a background in recommendation systems, which would be the type of um, algorithm you'd use there. But that does seem more like a deep learning uh, type of type of bias. Uh, yeah, no, I, you'd have to you'd have to ask somebody who's working on on recommendation systems to to get a little bit more of a, a background there. Well, at least it's good for a little bit of a laugh here. But um, going back to the million dollars of compute time, mm. I'd, I'd like to ask you to go back to your days in academia. I mean, how, how would somebody in academia even get access to that kind of resource? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, a lot of the big cloud providers do have research grants. So I know uh, Google Cloud Platform does. I'm pretty sure. I know Facebook does, I'm pretty sure. And not that they're a cloud provider, but that they do have compute grants for researchers. Um, Amazon, I think. Uh, maybe other ones. Microsoft, almost certainly. Um, so one way is to, to partner with businesses and to try and you know um, get access to more resources that way. Um, sometimes universities will provide compute. Um, so... Canada, interestingly, has one compute cluster for all of their higher, I should say that it was the case several years ago that Canada had one compute cluster for all of their um, uh, institutes of higher education. So everyone was competing for the same limited resources, which uh, sounds frustrating. Uh, and the um, Universities in the U.S. sometimes will have compute clusters. Sometimes it's part of the department budget that you have have money to spend on compute. Um, sometimes people do maintain their own their own hardware, but that's expensive, um, especially because hardware tends to you know become out of date fairly quickly. Um, and then the, the third option is just to not not have it, right? <laughs> Find some sort of alternative. Um, and for me, what I find most interesting um, as 
in this in this um, era of bigger data, bigger models, training for longer, is models that are smaller and don't need to train as long and can still have um, equally good results, or even maybe not equally good. Um, like I personally would take, you know, um, well, let's say a five percentage point drop if my model could train twice as quickly, right? Um, so a lot of the work in academia is, you know, constrained necessarily. Um, and a lot of academic researchers do, uh, who are working in this field do tend to move to industry labs. Uh, there's a, a pretty, pretty strong um, movement uh, in that direction, at least the, the researchers in my social group. So the um, question about resources and application, mm. you know, models like BERT, for instance, mm. Take I don't know. It took like four days or something on TPUs. In fact, and to even train it, to me it just seems like it predicts you know, backwards and forwards uh, words, and that doesn't seem to a common person as a huge novel thing. Mm-hmm. Can you boil down a little bit, you know, for those of us who just need to use AI in our daily life and stuff like that? What is the ramifications of some of this research? Do you foresee it going in a direction that's going to kind of lead, live up to its, uh, all the work that's put into it? Yeah, that's a good question. So big models that are released are generally not going to be immediately applicable to consumers. They would be something that would be put into um, a pipeline of other things. So BERT in particular, um, you could use to replace language models. Um, and a language model is sort of a it's sort of predicting the words that you you would see um, given given other words in a string. Uh, so they're really commonly used in um, voice recognition, for example, automatic speech recognition as one very common place or um, uh, automatically generating suggestions for for emails, um, like the next word for tab complete sort of thing. Um, auto suggest, I think it's called. So those are places where it might be put into a pipeline. Uh, and as a consumer, you may not know that a different model is being used, but the hope is that you will find the uh, the output to be um, of higher accuracy and need fewer corrections. Um, and in general, the models that are being trained, the really large models tend to be, um, especially for researchers, very narrow in their domain. They tend to be looking at a specific question um, or specific task. Um, One of the very common ones, and this is going to sound a little bit weird, is um, third grade science tests, like answering questions on third grade science tests. Because the idea is if you can answer questions on third grade science tests, it requires a certain degree of reasoning about the world and understanding of systems and how they work. Um, And there's some evidence that Actually, these very large language models like BERT are very good at um, using statistical cues and maybe not as good as modeling the information and the knowledge about what's in the world um, because that's not that's not what they've been designed for. Um, but I think it's easy if you're a researcher to get, um, especially if you're a researcher who doesn't work on language specifically, to get very excited by human sounding text am i interpreting what you're saying correctly in terms of uh the direction is trying to get computers to predict even like say spoken dialect because 
I mean, I, I'm struggling with Google Translate to mm. just uh, show me what my friends and careers are saying on Twitter, for example. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. horrible. So that's just even standard Korean is tough. And then uh, dialect, there's little documentation, right, in a lot of cases. Yeah, language variation is definitely a challenge, particularly for modern machine learning methods. And again, it's that we've got really good evidence that if you have a lot of data and a lot of time and a lot of money, you can train a good model for the thing. But for minority language varieties, you don't necessarily have a lot of data. Um, so Korean is a, a fairly large language. Um, and obviously there's there's different groups of speakers who use the language in different ways, which is true of all languages. Um, but Korean is in a much better place than like, I don't know, Cherokee. How much Cherokee data do we have? Not that much compared to, you know, English, for example, the vast majority of, of NLP research is done on English because we have a lot of English text data uh, and not necessarily because English is a good proxy for all human languages. Is there a common language model underneath all of this that will be discovered? And is it like symbolic, do you believe? And ultimately, you know, as far as language is concerned, will it evolve and will we all, you know, eventually be speaking one language? Do you know? Uh, will we eventually be speaking one language? No, I don't think so. Um, I would be extremely surprised if, if that happened. Um, will, so the, to get to the sort of first half of your question, um, is it possible to get, okay, look, I should probably explain what I mean by language model. Cause I think that'll, that'll help clarify the second half of the question. Um, so a language model is a um, statistical representation of the, um, a traditional language model is a statistical representation of the um, probabilities of words and their joint probabilities. So a statistical language model would say, um, given the sentence, I'm going to the, uh, there are a set of nouns that would go there um, or potentially a set of adjectives and then a set of nouns that could go there. So like store would have a higher probability than, um, uh, I'm trying to think of something that can't possibly be a noun. I always get myself in this situation. Uh, Anne, right? A-N. You're probably not going to see in a corpus, I'm going to the Anne barbershop or something like that. Um, so language models in that sense are very language specific because they're based on a lexicon or a list of words for a specific language. Um, and you could train a language model on text that has a large variety of languages in it. Um, but the more examples you can see of a specific word, the better an idea of what you're going to have where it gets used. Um, so multilingual language modeling is not super common. Generally, people do it within within one language. So given that, um, is there a language model that would work for all languages? Um, if you had data for all languages, yeah, probably. Um, if you, in, in the sort of thought experiment where we use all of the text data that we have for all languages in the world, we just have access to it. It's on a really big hard drive somewhere. Um, I imagine it wouldn't actually be uh, a language model trained on that. I don't imagine it would actually be super helpful in all situations. 
A, it's going to be big, uh, so it's going to take a long time to sort of do its predictions just because it has a very large space to search in because there's many languages and each language has many words. Um, and sometimes languages aren't broken down into words like they are in English. They're broken down into um, smaller pieces that you would combine. So um, a more morphological language. So if you speak German, you know that a German word can have many small parts that are combined together. So you might only see one example of a German word, even though it's made of, of many common parts that are, are put together in a, in a uh, not uncommon pattern. So that's a big part of the problem. Um, and my guess is because English would be so overrepresented in this fictitious all of the text in the world data set, um, you're going to have a language model that will tend to whatever language you start with at some point switch to English um, just because of the the skew of the probabilities. And there's probably some ways you could get around that, but yeah, I don't know how useful it would be computationally. And I don't know that it would tell us anything particularly insightful about humans. Uh, besides that, I guess if somebody did this, humans sure will just try things, huh? Absolutely. And what are your thoughts on synthesizing either language in order to fill in your missing values and your mm. data sets and language, or even synthesizing language to do natural language generation? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think those are areas that have reached their maturity? Or you know, where do you see that progression of the synthesis of d- language data? I don't think we have reach the point at which computers can generate language that not only sounds fluent, but also is based on a knowledge base of correct information. So if you've played around with any of the GPT-2 text generation, it looks fluent, but it will generate incorrect statements, if that makes sense. It's because it's not based on... um, world knowledge. So there, the, one of the examples in the paper that got passed around on Twitter a lot was um, a story about scientists discovering unicorns. No scientists have discovered unicorns, right? Maybe rhinoceroses or something like that. But that's not an actual thing that happened. It's something that uh, the, uh, the, the researchers seeded the model with, and then it continued to sort of hallucinate basically um, words that were related with that in a pattern that seemed very human-like, but included incorrect information. And if you seeded the model with something uh, factual, it wouldn't necessarily give you factual information in the generated text, if that makes sense. So it's sort of like um, sort of like somebody with aphasia, right? You can you can generate text. Yes, it sounds like a human. It potentially sounds like a human has said it. Uh, it definitely follows the patterns of English in this case, uh, but it's not grounded in understanding of the the system in the world. On the other hand, uh, language generation is kind of trivial and also we're doing it every day. Uh, And when you have, and the specific places where it tends to be used is for templatic reporting. So things like reporting um, scores of sports like football. There we go. (laughs) I came up with a sport. Um, So you would have uh, the information in a a sort of a template that you're like, um, team one, team two, who won, and the score. And then you can pass that template to a language generator. And it will use um, a rule-based system basically to generate um, text around that that gives you a little paragraph like the Giants and the Ravens went head to head on Saturday, assuming you also gave it information about the date. the Giants won with a four-point lead. 
blah blah, and that's the and that's the paragraph that's been generated from this um, factual sort of data representation that you've given it. So that's already out there. People are using that. Um, that's not going to give you wrong facts as long in the in the generated text as long as you give it right facts on the inside. The the problem, the thing that's not disconnecting here, that's not connected here, is the ability to take a knowledge base and generate language from it in a fluent way without sort of using these templates and these rule-based systems. Um, that's not there yet. So I, I believe, like Chris Hammond yeah. from Narrative Science, you know, said to me once that they're not using any machine learning generating their text. Is that why? I would imagine so, because you you will get weird stuff out of neural networks in general, specifically deep learning. Um, and I'm, anyone who's worked with deep learning uh, <laughs> substantially can tell you every so often you just get like, you get a weird thing out because the um, the decision region is oddly shaped, basically. Um, linear regression will give you like a, a line through your decision region um, and, and deep learning will get you something. It'll get you some sort of shape. Um, I, that was maybe not super helpful if you don't already have a have a good understanding of deep learning, um, but yeah, it'll just hallucinate things. It'll it'll create weird, not improbable patterns based on language usage as a whole, but not correct. You know. Yeah. So Rachel, just as a closing, we're trying to keep this within within twenty six point one minutes. You know. So uh, that- I get it. We can be within our, yeah, commute. That's the average commute time in the U.S., by the way. So we try to keep within that. So any closing kind of comments, remarks, or thoughts on, you know, on where you want to leave the readers? Hmm. Uh, We are not to the point uh, with natural language processing that we are with computer vision. Um, So right now I would say computer vision models are much more, robust and usable than, no, I don't necessarily want to say that. I'd say that language is harder than vision. Uh, And I do say this as someone with a degree in linguistics. So clearly I'm pretty committed to the idea that language is special in some way. Um, And we're not to the point with um, natural language processing that we are with computer vision research. Um, So computer vision generation and understanding, um, and things like segmentation, we're pretty pretty well there. Like it's the systems are extremely usable. Um, we're not there with with natural language processing yet. So one day. Yeah, and it's an extremely culturally deep as you are, and we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you and, and folks yeah, should join you for live coding um, Friday AMs at nine AM yes. on Twitch or YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. Nine AM Pacific. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on AI Podcast. You can reach us at ai-podcast.com or find us on Spotify or iTunes. Thank you again, and we'll see you soon.